And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. So what makes an investor write a check? That's a really good question. It's something we've talked about a lot on this show, and it's something we're going to talk about today. And before we get too far into that, I want to let you know that today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by SEC Advisor Group, the experts in helping others buy and sell small businesses. Whether you're a fellow entrepreneur trying to buy the company of your dreams or trying to sell your business before setting off to your next adventure, SEC Advisor Group helps small to mid-sized Businesses accomplish your transaction goals. Go to secadvisorgroup.com or find the link in the show notes. That's one way that people are writing checks, buying and selling businesses. But prior to that, most businesses get some kind of investment, some kind of backing, some kind of funding. We're going to talk all about what makes people write and actually sign the check. Because guess what? If you have a check for investment and it's not signed, it's just a piece of paper. With me today, I have Dana Wright. Dana's the managing director of Math Venture Partners. You can go to mathventurepartners.com. There's also a link for that in the show notes. They're located in the vapor of the internet these days and sometimes in Austin and Chicago. Math Venture Partners is an early stage venture capital fund focusing on technical and digital companies. Dana, welcome to Startup Hustle. Hi, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm glad you're here. Can I tell everyone that you showed up early and you were ready to go and you're really excited? <laughs> I did show up early. User error. I actually had uh, booked it a little bit early in, 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 so that I wouldn't be late is what I did. Um, that, so. That's, hey, better, better early than late because honestly, if people are late, I just log out and then we either reschedule or we don't. I like to say that in most cases, when I'm talking to founders or CEOs, that no one tells the backstory of the company themselves better than themselves. In this case, a managing partner, or a managing director at VC firms are usually the founder types or the CEO types there at the fund. So why don't you do the same and give us a little bit of the backstory, not only about Math Venture Partners and what you do, but also about Dan and Wright. Yeah, well, um, they they are very different stories. So I actually, uh, Matt, I know you're in Kansas City. I actually grew up in Kansas, went to KU. Mm -hmm. I was in Kansas City for about 10 years. Then I kind of bounced all over the place. I was uh, in Omaha and then the Bay Area and then back to Omaha, Nebraska, and then up to Chicago. And now I sit in Austin. So I've been all over. I've seen a lot of different kinds of businesses and I came to venture late in life. So I had a, a broad kind of consulting and um, corporate career in all the big companies, sort of the anti-startup world. But early, early in my life, at like five years old, my first job was actually working in my mom's business in our basement in Salina, Kansas. And so 
that created this like entrepreneurial pull and I always wanted to do it, but I didn't feel like I had the right risk profile to do it. I was just about trying to, you know, make the money. And so I, I, I um, was on that corporate ladder for a long time. And then after I had some success at my last big corporate job, which I was in corporate development, um, we sold the business. We were a private equity owned business and we multiple, we, you know, doubled the business over a certain period of time, sold in 2013. I finally had the, uh, the money to actually sit back and think about what did I want to do? Um, and so that was a, a big exit. It was about four and a half billion dollars in 2013. That was big back then. Um, it was a private equity backed business though. It wasn't, you know, startup from scratch. It was a spin out from Conagra Foods and then, and then sold that. But I started to think about what are the ways in which I could take all those experiences as feeling that and all my M&A experience and like put it to work at least initially. And I thought I was going to go operate, but I started to dive into the early stage startup world and realized there was a lot I didn't know about the world, but a lot of skills that I did have. I bumped into the founders of math, Mark Ackler and Troy Hennikoff. That's where the M-A-T-H comes from. Um, and I uh, loved what they were doing. And so I became an investor in math as an LP. And then they asked me, well, do you want to hang out with us for a little while while you figure out what your next thing is? Thinking that I would be operating uh, in a startup. And I did that for a little bit. And then I kind of never left. And after a year, they asked me to join them as their third partner. There's nothing better than when you finally figure out what you want to do when you grow up. Am I right? And this is the best job in the world. Like, I love it. As, as evil as venture can be, and we can talk about that, um, I, also, I also love it. I've always been about how do you combine people and business and how do you grow and scale? And I think that uh, this, is, this is the best job in the world in order to do that. You, you know, you mentioned the, it being a great job, and I, I would imagine it's because helping other people get what they want is really redeeming. I get a lot of that as the CEO at full scale and like helping people actually build the software development teams they need that they can afford and stuff like that. And, you know, here as I've gotten a little more, I, I used to say older, but now I just say experienced. Like I, my, my desire to start bring you mentioned coming out of doing a bunch of stuff. You're like, Hey, they thought I'd be an operator. Like the older you get, I think the harder it gets to want to start something from scratch. Cause those first years or the quote early stage is excruciating. Now that happens to be the space that you guys at math, uh, really get into. And, you know, uh, we're going to, I'm going to do something very rudimentary really quickly. I'm going to, so when we say what's an investor, an investor is any person or an entity that commits capital with the expectation of receiving some kind of return. Now, the earlier the stage, the riskier that investment, but you also often have more checks that you can write to kind of hedge 
it, with with a, a, a bigger volume of companies to you know to look at now in the history of startup hustle and for those of you listening you know we by the time this comes out we will have had our two millionth download we made it into the top 25 of apple's all-time entrepreneurship list and thank you for everyone that helped make that happen but i've been running a, a very unscientific poll for the last few years and asking investors if they'd like to bet on the jockey or the horse. Um, I'll let you participate in that real quick uh, before I tell you what the results are. And then we'll talk a little bit about what makes investors make that bet either, either or. So do you prefer the jockey or the horse? At the earliest stages, it's about the jockey. And that's because the horse, meaning the idea or the market can change. Um, as the company gets product market fit, as it begins to scale, as they issue new products, as they expand their products. And so for us, it's a lot about, um, it's a lot about the team. Um, and so I would fall on the jockey side of that at the earliest stages. So you are now part of the 100% consensus that has chosen jockey. Eventually someone may pick horse, but we haven't even come close yet. So, you know, when we talk about the things that make someone write a check, that's an important question to ask early. And it's an important thing to examine for you personally as an entrepreneur or as a business. It's uh, who's on your team, like knowing that people that that the investment wants to be made and people at the earliest stages who are you? Who are the people on your team? Who are you? Why do you win? Why have you won? All of it. What are some of the what are some of the qualities that you look for in the people on the team that make you want to write a check? Yeah. So so let's start with the way I start almost every conversation. And this this is just me. This is my style. Is I say, tell me about yourself. Give me your background and your story. And and what the origin story of the business is. So everybody's talking about founder market fit now, or, and, and, and I think that that is maybe getting a little overused, but I wanna understand why this person, this idea, this problem that they're trying to solve is important to them to the point of obsession. And the reason I say that is because it takes that kind of dedication in order to stay with it for the long haul. And if you don't have that, in my experience, if it's just, hey, I really want to be an entrepreneur and there's like 10 ideas that I can go do and this happens to be the one that I started to get traction on, that's much less interesting to me. So I want to understand why this founder was put on this earth to solve this problem in a way that no other founder was. Yeah. And pro product, uh, product and founder market fit is described as basically being a subject matter expert in whatever industry you're getting ready to enter. And that has a lot, you know, that I get, I'll use myself as an example. So I've invested in a couple uh, startups that were related to music uh, I worked in the music industry for 10 years. 
I got a roll. I have something I got, to talk I mean, to I, you I, about I, after yeah, the after right. the podcast. Well, there you go. There you go. And I mean, I wrote a book on the subject with that has like ten different rock stars in it. And you know, and and on that, it wasn't just on that side of it. I and uh, on top of all that, I worked in the musical instrument side. I didn't work in performing arts. I'm not. A, I'm not a musician. I'm actually a hack as a musician, but I understand the industry and 95% of it is not what you see on stage. Probably more like 99% of it is not what you see on stage, but have a basic understanding. And part of why that's important is if you are a subject matter expert and you've experienced the industry you're in, you have a strong ability to understand the problems that need to be solved in that industry. And you probably know a lot of other people in the industry that you can reach out to with that solution later. Are there other reasons that you look for that, that I didn't just mention? Yeah, I mean, so let me give you the counter argument to what you just said. It may be that you've experienced a problem that that makes um, your that you don't have a lot of background in a particular industry, but you've experienced a problem and you want to solve it in a new and different way, a very disrupting way. Um, and so the counter to being a subject matter expert in the actual industry is actually being an outsider in the industry so that you're looking at things from a different perspective and you yep. can see the problem and the solution in a different way. So when I say, you know, founder market fit, I, it's, it's less to me about do they, do people have an exact experience or expertise in a particular area, but what is it about unique about that individual that makes them want to solve this problem and makes them, uh, you know, is, is fuel to what it takes for an entrepreneur to stay with it and to be resilient and to see it all the way through to completion. If it's, Hey, I really, this is my first startup. I want to do like 10 startups in my life and I want to get on to the next thing if they probably don't have the, the wherewithal to stick it through the highs and lows of whatever, um, whatever issue they're going through. So to use your example, in music, I am on the board of one of our portfolio companies, Music Audience Exchange. They help artists get promotion dollars in order to, from brands, which is kind of a sponsorship issue, uh, to promote their new music releases, their tours, and generally their music along the way. Now, uh, Nathan, the founder and CEO of that business, is actually somebody who, um, who from the time he was little, he, he tells stories about you know listening to his mom play the music and be on stage and he'd be like sleeping on a bench in the, in the back backstage while his mom and his uncle played their songs he comes at it from that standpoint but his expertise in business is all around marketing and marketing to brands and so he was the um head of sales and coo for a company called reach local that helped small businesses market and brand their businesses in the age of when everything was moving from telephone books onto, onto uh, the web. And so he comes at it from a marketing perspective, but he has this deep need that fuels him every day around why he wants to solve this problem. Yeah, you mentioned something about obsession earlier. And, you know, I have a, there's a couple, uh, 
uh, fine line things that I've asked people for years, like what's the difference between being a genius and being crazy? And another one is, is there a difference between being driven and being obsessed? Um, sometimes the answer to that is, is held by those observing you, not necessarily yourself. Cause it's easy to be like, yeah, I'm just driven. And everyone else is like, yeah, you're obsessed. But I think, I do think that's a key component to when it comes to innovation and building a business because obsession has a very powerful influence over your ability to just keep going and going and going and going. And I'm not talking it up as if it's always a healthy trait. Uh, it can be when it comes to entrepreneur success, but obsession comes with a price other places, like usually the rest of your life. Um, I've known a lot of people that have, when you couple obsession with world-class talent, you end up with the highest performing people at whatever it is that they do, because they never stop. Like I mentioned, we were talking about the music industry and I've talked to people that are like world-class musicians in the past. And I'm like, so what did it take? And they're like, well, I'm pretty much obsessed with this. I'm like, so if you're not playing guitar, does that mean you're like, how often are you thinking about it? And everyone, uh, all the, 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 the world-class musicians would be, well, I never really stopped thinking about it. Now that becomes problematic, but as an investor, I want to put money behind that man or woman because I know that they're kind of at it 24 seven. But there is kind of the, uh, the other side of it, though, because you mentioned, like, are you a genius or are you crazy? Obsession is going to lead to the crazy side of that, because, like I said, it's very easy for the rest of your life to fall apart because it's all you do is whatever it is you're yeah. obsessed with. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, it, so it's, it it's tough. It but can. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's yeah. this. And so there's. Um, oh, how do I explain this? So I always used to say, so people used to call me a workaholic. I work a lot. I love it. I love business. I, I'm just, I'm, 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 and I, I actually enjoy what I do. I, I always have. And the minute I don't stop enjoying it, I won't, I won't do it anymore. Um, it gives me energy. And so, and I have a high tolerance for stress. Um, and so I actually have like an optimal stress level that I think is higher than most people's stress level. So what I would say to you when we're talking about like an obsession, I, I think obsession or um, the mad genius or whatever you want to call that, there is an optimal level of that. And like you said, there's a very fine line because it can tip into something unhealthy. And even how much I've worked in my life has tipped over into that you know, unhealthy balance at some point, people are watching me going, what the hell? She's working hundred hours a week, like literally hundred hours a week. But for me, it didn't, it didn't feel abnormal. It didn't feel like unhealthy. Uh, so I think, I think there is that balance and there's like this optimal level, not like a peak level because a peak level can get become unhealthy really quickly, but what's the optimal level? Yeah. A lot of that, it has to do with your ability to realize that 
you're a little over the line and that's different for everyone. So you never know how that's going to come out. Now I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation because I find this subject captivating. Before we do that, I want to let you know that that SEC advisor group not only understands what it takes to buy and sell smaller businesses, but also brings them a strong network of both buyers and sellers to match up two particular acquisition needs, visit secadvisorgroup.com. That's S-E-C-K advisorgroup.com to learn more about finding the right buyer or seller for your business. There's a link in the show notes. There's also a link in the show notes to Math Partners because they want to know what you're doing and how you're obsessed with the success of your business. We're sitting here giving you the playbook on how to get a check. But like, I think that that was really good advice. Like, why are you obsessed with winning? And, you know, some of that, one of the things that, and I want to kind of move on to the next thing down the line here. I think that founders often want to, uh, want to not talk about past failures. And I think that that's a tactical mistake when it comes to, getting a check from an investor. I'm okay with the fact that you failed in the past. In fact, I kind of want you to have failed in the past. A, I want to see if you're that founder with scars that gets up off the mat. And also until you failed, it's really easy, especially the longer you go without the failure to kind of get this feeling of being bulletproof. And I would prefer that you do that before I give you my money. Meaning like, get you learn so much from failing and you learn so much about yourself especially the uh until you're backed in a corner and you have to punch your way out of it like you don't know if you can if you will or how you react you don't know if you're going to crumple up into a little ball and start crying or if you're going to punch your way out of it and you know like so that's right. I think that I think it's really important to share the failure and like I said I really don't like if someone if someone's in front of me and they're telling me how they've never failed, I'm thinking either A, you're not telling me the truth, B, you haven't been trying hard enough, or maybe you're beginning to feel bulletproof and that makes you take chances and things that, like I said, that eh, it's like I said, it's real easy to feel bulletproof. What are your comments on that outlook on a founder? Yeah, so I think uh, people get told to um, be, be really confident people get coached in different ways. What I want to understand is what did that failure teach you? So it, yes, everybody has failed. And to your point, if they haven't, they, they are either lying or they're not trying hard enough. And so I had this conversation yesterday with a team that I'm not yet invested in, but um, I'm helping to coach and mentor. And the first time I met with them, they said, they, they were telling me about all the things that went right and where their business was and how it had scaled and that they were ready for expansion. The second time I met with them, I was asking more questions and they, I said, I want to see a product demo and they were showing me wireframes. And I said, wait a minute, you, you just told me that you had scaled this in a couple of locations. You were ready to expand. Now you're showing me wireframes when I asked for the, like, what is going on? And I had to have a, a third meeting just with the founder and say, look, you were, you were misleading during that first conversation. Talk to me about what happened. Talk to me about why you shut the business down, why you're restarting. And he walked me through the whole thing. And I felt 
even more compelled to help this person uh, because they had talked to me about what they had learned from that initial experience and what they were going to do different with the next, the next version. So I think there's, you know, we talk about fine lines. There's a really fine line between coming off as confident and also being vulnerable and confident enough. Like if you're pushing the limits, you're going to fail at some things. What have you learned from those? That's the best way to approach that conversation. Talking about your failures and admitting them doesn't mean you have to be unconfident. You can be quite confident. In fact, like that's, in, in my opinion, that's a way to express a level of ultimate confidence. You can say, you know what, Dana, we failed. We made some wrong moves. Um, we thought we had a lot of things figured out and we learned that we didn't. And this is how we reacted from that. This is how we did this, did that. Um, this is what we learned and all that. And you can do that without most confidence. I think that the ultimate badge of confidence is admitting that you aren't Superman or Superwoman. You aren't bulletproof, that you are trying to learn. And that, I mean, on some levels that you can actually make decisions quickly and right the ship in a way that isn't completely cataclysmic. So, okay. So 100%. we, we talked, we, we're sitting here and we're talking about how to get an investor to write a check. And we've had episodes in the past about how to not get them. So you can probably find those in the feed. We acknowledge at the beginning of the show that investors love to bet on the jockey more so than the horse. Cause the fastest horse without any direction usually doesn't find its way to the finish line or maybe even out of the starting gate on some levels, you do still have to have some kind of winning steed to ride. You have to have some kind of company and, you know, in order, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't visit some of the things that are important on the, on the company side of things. And, and if you want to get a check from an investor, I think there's a few, obviously you want to show that you have the right team and that there's some level of alignment, meaning like the guy that was a software developer for 15 years might not, isn't probably going to be sold to me as your CMO. You know, it's not someone that has experience with that stuff. So are, is your team aligned with the right things? Now, when it comes to your pro, the, the, the problem that your business solves, you have to clearly define what that is and why people are willing to pay for it. Like you can have a great team, but if you like, if your solution doesn't seem like anything that people care about or that they'll pay for or whatever, are you already, have you already lost? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the problem and solution are interesting things because it may be that you can't get traction for certain reasons. I think a lot of founders out there are, here's the problem. Here's the product that I'm building to solve that problem. And they miss the real connection with the customer because just because it solves a problem doesn't mean that the, you'll get the customer to buy that solution. And so we spend most of our time and our, our main thesis is around customer acquisition. So how well do you know the customer? How, what are your, what are your mechanisms for getting that customer in at the earliest, earliest stages? That's fundamentally, do you care 
about the customer and what the customer needs are in a way that's going to be compelling. Now, there are some products that work in spite of themselves. Um, we have uh, somebody who we did not invest in who's doing very, very well. Um, and we, we uh, are all users of the product because it's the best one out there um, in, our, in our venture firm. And, and we can't get our head around making the investment because fundamentally the CEO does not understand the customer or care about the customer. He's just building more features. And so we see that disconnect a lot. And all the things that we're talking about are pretty, are pretty basic like things that are out there. Everybody knows you have to have, you know, founder market fit, that you need to get a big, big market, that you need to go founder, that you need to go problem solution, make that connection, talk about the team. Matt, if it's okay with you, I'd love to talk about some of the other, the, the underbelly things that are going in, on inside a venture firm that actually people don't tell you that could impact whether you're going to get a check or not. Um, because I, thought I, never, I, thought, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> I mean, because there, there's these obvious things and you can go on people's websites and you can find out what stage they of check they write. And you can find out what kind of industry. You can look at their prior, you know, investments and go, okay, they like these types of investments. And so all of that is, is really obvious. But what might be less obvious to the entrepreneur is really, you know, what, what is the return profile that that investor needs to see from each portfolio company in order to make their fund work. Because ultimately, well, we care and we, the, the portfolio companies, like we want to make them successful. Ultimately, if you're pitching a fund, then that fund is a separate business and that fund has certain returns it needs to make. And so, there are things that are non-obvious in their strategy that may impact whether you get a check or not. So one is just, are they a spray and pray kind of, uh, kind of investor? So are they making you know, 50 investments to try to get a handful of those to like go off the charts or are they a concentrated investor? The answer to that, you may pitch the, the same idea very differently to those two investors. Um, so there's underlying things going on at the fund that may, that may be less obvious to the, the entrepreneur when they're pitching. Um, even if you look at historically, like what kind of companies did they invest in? And so you go, oh, they invested in like three marketing companies and I have a marketing company. So I'm going to uh, pitch them. Well, maybe all three of those marketing companies failed and they learned a lot from being in that industry and they have a scar there and they just never want to do that again. So there's all kinds of, as much as the the entrepreneurs are an interesting kind of uh, dynamic the investors are also an interesting kind of dynamic. And ultimately, when you're a 
a entrepreneur pitching, you're, you're in a sales process um, and, and, a, and a fundraise process that, that works like a sales process. And so you need to understand what's important to those, to those investors. I think one of the things that I've learned that's in Congress with that as well is that it's uh, it's almost impossible to get an investment check from someone that doesn't understand what you do. And so many of these funds in the end, you know, like, I mean, sure, some of them have sophisticated methods of, of confirming or denying whether or not you're going to get a check. But really, in the end, it's people that are deciding it. And oftentimes, three to five people sitting at a table, hey, do you like this, Dana? No, I don't. Okay, cool. I don't either. And now it's done. It's the, I mean, and that that is that is how your fate with that fun, firm or fund, it can be decided that quickly. And that comes down to the fact that a confused mind almost always says no. So the idea that venture capital or investors in general just understand everything about all things is naive. So I like one of the advice that I've get some advice I've given to people is like, who are you talking to? Like you need to understand, like if you can get any kind of intel or understanding about who you're delivering your message to, it can control how you shape the message. It's kind of like you were saying earlier with the spray and pray approach or the concentrated approach. Like who exactly are you talking to? Like who are the people at the table? What do they get? What do they understand? Cause you can see the eyes light up when you have solutions or pitches that are some anywhere near what some of these investors seem to understand. Now, if you are, you are involved in some kind of emerging technology on some levels, you may have to dumb that down. Like you may have to explain it as if you were talking to a five-year-old or a Labrador retriever or something, because here's the thing is if you can't get it, get it to be understood. Like, it's just silly to believe that everybody, like I even told you before we hit record on this show today, I'm like, I'll be the first person to admit on air in front of the whole world that I don't know what the hell we're talking about. So I will, but what that does is that means that I have to go back and ask these really elementary questions. I'm like, hang on, stop. First off, what do those three acronyms even mean? Cause I've never even heard of them. And so one of the things I used to, I was a sales trainer a long time ago. And one of the things that I learned is that often when you go into specialty retailers, you will find someone selling something that understands it at a level that you can't even fathom. And they are often guilty of talking over the buyer's head. They're using terms and jargon and just all of it and going too fast. And you end up with this like blitz of info and you're like, okay, what just happened? So you have to back up and you kind of missed your opportunity as a salesperson in that point, because you got to understand what level you're talking to. Now, if you're talking to someone that has a remarkably high level of expertise on that subject, you have a good chance of surviving with the high level approach. But if you're talking to someone that's an entry level, like hobbyist, or just doesn't really understand it, you're going to blow them away. And they're going to immediately start thinking, this is too much. I don't need all this. I don't get it. I'm not going to buy it. Or I have to go figure it out. I have to go research it. And if you have to have the investors doing too much of that, I find that you're going to probably find that they're just going to move on to the next deal that they might understand. Cause there's a lot of people out there looking for money and there's a lot of people out there writing checks. 
Yeah, so, I agree. And, but this, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier around the customer, like how well do you know the customer and how can you modulate to the customer in whether you're speaking to it from a salesperson's perspective or from a founder raising capital perspective, you still have to be able, you have to, you have to know your, your pitch, you have to know your numbers, you have to know your solution well enough to speak at it at multiple levels. And you have to be able to modulate based on, um, based on your audience. And I think that that's uh, uh, incre- incredibly uh, important. I also think the market dynamic is is interesting right now. Uh, so if you, you know, we, you said there's a lot of people looking for money. There's a lot of people writing checks. When you're an entrepreneur trying to raise capital, the market dynamic is also something that you should be aware of and understand um, how that might impact your ability to get the checks when there's a high velocity of deals happening. Um, it's actually interesting because I think what you just said, you know, that person that you're pitching to may not take the extra cycles they need in order to understand your business better. Um, we're a generalist firm. So we've invested in lots of different companies and lots of different industries. And sometimes I think that hurts us in when we're, when we're looking at an opportunity, just, just as you talked about, because it takes us longer to like uncover and educate ourselves and learn. So if you're a venture capitalist and you're curious about that and you want to go deep, you can learn it. Um, And maybe that's something that you want your venture capitalist to do because they have expertise in other things and you're the expert. Many times because we're an early stage firm and we're not usually the only firm getting into a deal, we'll have somebody that's much more focused on the industry that's a co-investor with us where we come in around customer acquisition and business model and getting unit economics right and some of those other other components and they're bringing the expertise. So I think it I think it all depends but you're right you really need to be able to speak to their to their level. Well, one thing that all investors understand is traction and valuations on some levels. So like I mean it's possible they might not understand anything about what you do, but if you're demonstrating traction and the D and it looks and it appears and it feels like a good deal, or at least it has a chance of it. You're going to reduce that reliability on having a real understanding of what it is the company does. And, and look, you know, like it's impossible for everyone to know everything about everything. Like, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in 50 different industries. Like, and I'm so fascinated with 50 different industries but that doesn't mean I, I like really get them. It doesn't mean I'm going to just decide I want to dominate automotive. And now I, that's what I do. But that's one right. thing I do understand and can see is you can see traction one way or the other. Like, are you hemorrhaging or are you growing? And those those things are damn near zeros and ones when it comes to binary. That's kind of a yes or a no kind of thing. You're, you know, and so, you know, one and of the things like, like I guess. 
It, well, yeah, I, think it, I think it can help you. Yeah. Sorry, that may help yeah. you get the check. But is that going to help you later on down the road when you need somebody to come in and be strategic and help you figure out maybe that maybe that traction is there early and that helps you get the check. But what happens when you start to, to, to falter? Um, if they don't really understand the business, how are they going to help you uh, navigate, navigate that business? Okay, so we'll, we're going to play a game real quick, a game that I just invented called How to Not Get a Check. Um, I've got because we're, we're running out of time and we have as much time as we need, but we can't make more time. By the way, if you have a startup that invents a way for me to get a 28 hour day, please call me first because I might be into that. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to I have a list of common mistakes that a company or a founder that's looking for an, an investor may make. And I'm going to read them really quickly and I'll let you pick your top three favorite ways that people mess shit up. Um, now, before I do that, a quick reminder that the SEC advisor group not only understands what it takes to buy and sell smaller businesses, but also brings with them a strong network of both buyers and sellers to match up particular acquisition needs. Go to secadvisorgroup.com. They were gracious enough to sponsor today's episode of the show. They want you to get a check. We want you to get a check. You want to get a check. And now here is a list of ways that you probably won't. One, you didn't do your homework. Two, you don't know your customers. Three, you have a lack of focus on relationship building. Four, you do not have a vision for the future. Five, you don't know your numbers. Six, there's a lack of transparency. Seven, you suck at follow through. Eight, you have a lack of general financial knowledge or nine poor communication. All right. I would say for us, not knowing your customer, um, for some others, it, for some other investors, it may be something else for us. It would be not knowing your customer, not driving a big enough vision. So you, you, you have to balance this approach between, like selling the big vision and then being focused on the right now. So there's another, an, another balancing act. And then the third is by far, if you, if, if you are not transparent or if you are not actually uh, focused, in, if I, if I feel like there's something that you've told me that's untrue and I tease that out in the conversation, you've lost all credibility. I'm not going to do business with you. Okay, I'm going with not having a vision for the future, because if you don't have the vision, there's no way that you can transfer that vision to others. If you don't get it, no one else at the company probably will. Lack of transparency, for sure. Like, if I get a whiff of bullshit, I'm done. And, you know, here's the thing is you got to under you got to just assume that people that can write checks that you want to cash are sophisticated enough to eventually figure out if you're full of it or not. Like just go with that assumption and just tell the truth because there's no bigger waste of time than getting three months down the road. And now you're getting called out on it. And now you get to start over somewhere else. And I'm actually going to go with poor communication next, because if you can't communicate with me properly about 
$100,000 check, why would you be good at communicating about anything else? I, and I'm going to kind of link that with, I'm going to give a 3B response uh, to, which is kind of like, like no follow through. Because I think no follow through is, a, is kind of a subset of poor communication. Like, look, you, you mentioned earlier that the investment process is a pseudo sales process. Now, the one thing as a salesperson that's going to help you sell more stuff is follow through and also just asking Hey, Dana, do you think that this is something that you'd like to invest in? That's right. You got to make gonna the tell ask. Me, you're, you will probably tell me yes or no. Yeah. So ask, ask, communicate that because if it's a no, then you use my favorite four letter word in sales other than sold, which is next. And you move on down the line. It's just the way it goes, but that's communication. And like, I, Communication's tough because you have to understand on some levels, if it's personal, the community, the personality style that the other person has, because if you're really introverted and I'm not, I can just blow you away. I can literally leave you flattened on the street and you're going to just like hate every part of that. Or maybe if it's the other way around, I'm going to give you way too many details to the point that your eyes have blazed over. And by the time I'm telling you what I really want, I've quit listening a long time ago. So yeah, I think my general rule of that, it, yeah, well, it's, it's important, right? Yeah. No, yeah, no, communication you're good. I mean, with no. Us makes, communication with us is a proxy for, are you good at communicating with customers? Are you good at communicating with your yeah. team? Are you good at communicating yeah. with other investors? How are you going to be as you need to go out and get more capital? And so communication is a proxy for so many, for so many things. We always look at it as, look, if this was important to you, you'd be communicating. So if you're not communicating, then, um, then, then, then you're not taking that seriously. So communication it, it, it is high up there. Once again, with me today, I've got Dana Wright, managing partner at Math Ventures. Go to Math Ventures. Is it Math Ventures or Math Venture Group? Math Venture Math Partners. Venture Partners. There you go. There's nothing better than transparently missing the guest's real web address three times, but getting it right. And we didn't lie about that. We didn't shield the failure. We owned it there. So go to mathventurepartners.com. Matt, what did you learn uh, from that? I learned that I should read the notes that I have right in front of me rather than looking at myself in my own recording view. Yeah. So I learned that notes and accuracy are way better than the way that I look on a Tuesday morning when I'm recording. You know, I wanted to add one other thing when it came to communication. I go into, I advise or personally myself go into any investor call or meeting with the assumption that I'm talking to a type A person, meaning like I get right to the point now. I didn't used to do that. I get to the point. Like, I think that it, like so many, just that's a type A driven culture in, in that regard. And type A people want you to get to the point, get to the point. Don't, don't talk your listener into submission uh, at when you're at the investment table and you're giving a pitch. All right. So I end my episodes of start a puzzle with what I call the founders freestyle. I say my episodes, I'm not the only host of the show. Make sure you tune in on Tuesdays, join Andrew Morgan's the CEO and founder of Marknology. They are an Amazon brand accelerator. He will help you navigate the muddy waters of Amazon and e-commerce tune in on Thursdays and join innovate her CEO Lauren Conaway, she tackles tough topics and often hosts 
our top startups city by city. She will be joining me in September as we talk about the top startups in the Minneapolis area. If you haven't had enough startup hustle, come back on Fridays. If you're a longtime listener, you may or may not know, and I'm giving up my Friday spot because we are bringing in a series of guest hosts that are going to have targeted uh, topics on a whole lot of different stuff. We kicked that off with my fellow cast member from Startup Hustle TV, which you can find on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, type in Startup. You can pretty much go anywhere. Just type in Startup Hustle and you can find our, our Facebook chat group, our YouTube channel, a lot of different stuff. But Heather Steppy from Startup Hustle TV and the KC Hemp Company is doing an eight-part series about the cannabis business. And man, that is a wild ride for so many involved. Back to the founder's freestyle. We're going to put a little twist on it. I usually, when I'm talking to a founder, we try to give our recap of whatever we said that was worthwhile in the episode, what we may have missed and what our favorite parts are. But in this case, I'd like to go, I'd like to uh, drop a little one-two punch on the listening audience about the best advice you can give for getting the check. I believe that it's all about finding the investor that's going to fit where you are at your stage and strategy. And so rather than play the numbers game, uh, find the people that do the research to, to find the, the best folks out there that are going to fit with the problem that you are solving. I agree with you. And I think that you have to, my advice is ask yourself how bad you really want it and keep going and going and going until you find someone that's willing to buy into what you're doing. Um, that's a different number for everyone. I mean, some people on the show talk to three people, some people talk to 300 and, and you're right. Like that volume approach is, is watered down. If you're, uh, approaching investment firms that only buy into enterprise software and you're a service company, that's, that's the wrong fit but find as many that do invest in the kind of business that you have. And now you're on to something. The one thing I don't want to hear from you whenever I see you or get a message from you or whatever is, well, I couldn't get funded. And I'll say, well, how many places do you talk to? You're like, I talk to four. And I'm sitting there going, you are like 71 short of what is probably the average number of pitches, calls, or presentations given before someone gets a check. Once again, go to mathventurepartners.com, check out what they're doing and go to secadvisorsgroup.com. There's links in the show notes for all that. They'll help you buy or sell a business if that's what you want to do. Dana, thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to catch up with you down the road. Thank you. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.